Alan Turing podcast with James Turing and some of the UK's most exciting and forward-thinking business leaders. Today, Alan is famous as the father of computer science and codebreaker of the Nazi Enigma machine, and has been celebrated by the BBC as the greatest person of the 20th century. But it wasn't always that way. At the time of his passing in 1954, Alan's life had been defined as much by the tragic way in which he was treated by the country he had done so much to help as it had by any of his work in mathematics or computing. Alan's family are keen to do their part in building the kinder and smarter world that Alan envisioned all those years ago, which is why we've launched this podcast series in which James Turing, the great nephew of Alan, will be speaking to some of the women and men shaping Britain's day, covering a range of subjects from sustainability and mental health to inclusivity and innovation. First of all, just a few words about the organisations behind this series. The Turing Trust is a charity run by the Turing family. They refurbish used IT kit, principally from businesses, install a range of fantastic educational software and provide it to those who need it most, principally in rural African communities. Their vision is that one day every child will be able to enjoy the transformative power of technology. If your business doesn't yet have a solution for reusing its old IT kit, please do get in touch. The other organisation behind this series is Boss Digital, which is an agency I launched in 2010 that specialises in helping B2B and professional service firms generate more business online. We're incredibly proud to be helping the Turing Trust accelerate their impact. So to reiterate, if your company does not have a strategy for its old IT kit and are sending it into landfill, please visit the Turing Trust website and they'll help you turn that waste into a tool that will transform the lives of thousands of students. Over to James. Hi, Scott. Thank you very much for joining me today on the Alan Turing podcast. If you wouldn't mind, would you start just by briefly introducing yourself, please? Yeah, brilliant. So uh, thank you very much indeed for having me. Uh, hello, everybody. I'm Scott Stockwell. Um, I'm the editor-in-chief at IBM for EMEA. Uh, so I look after teams that look after content across all of IBM's brands and service lines in all of the markets across EMEA. Fantastic. Thank you, Scott. So just to begin today, uh, I wanted to ask you whether you could tell us a little story about something from your early years that led you to pursuing this particular path in life. Yeah, sure. So I, I can't say it's a job that um, when I was at school, when someone said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't think editor-in-chief in a B2B organisation would have been top of mind. So um, I, I'm going to take you on a bit of a whistle-stop tour back to the Science Museum and the children's exhibit when I was at the tender age of nine. There's one exhibit there, an automatic door, which I think most kids were completely consumed by. You broke a beam, the door opened, and as a kid, what you wanted to do was kind of beat the system. There was always a huge queue for this, and my parents took me there several times, and I was more obsessed by a tube map, which was the map of the underground, Underneath was every single station. And what you could do was put your finger on the origin station and a second finger on the destination station. And the map would light up with your perfect route through the two stations. As a kid, I found it completely compelling. And what I'm mindful of, as I've kind of gone through my career and I look back at that, it was kind of like setting the direction of where I was going to go. And I've always loved things like textbooks and guidebooks and the person that read the instruction manual, things like methodologies, method cards, things I've been involved in like design thinking and something called Lego serious play have all been things that have tried to take something complicated and make it simple. 
try to put things into people's hands that make it easy for them to get something done and have something that's a bit playful and enjoyable in it. So kind of the direction for me was simplify the complicated and make it fun to get work done. And all the jobs I've done have kind of followed that path. And that tube map back in the Science Museum was sort of the sort of the thing that set me on the way, I guess. Incredible. You've brought a literal light bulb moment to this podcast. Well done. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I think that's something everyone can kind of agree on. When the tech works, it can often make life a lot, lot simpler. Um, And certainly, I think I was hearing a a kind of ridiculous story about how Google Maps and Ben Nevis haven't been playing ball together uh, as people have been trying to climb up Ben Nevis in a perfectly straight dotted line from the car park, which actually isn't a path. Um, but yeah, no, I can totally see that. And especially um, I, I've done one of those Lego workshops myself as well. Uh, and kind of seeing how else you can explain things in life or in business uh, working through those models. Is that something you kind of find that you're able to use through your day to day in trying to, to um, use all these models and things to kind of describe things more simply? I, I would love to say yes. Um, I think many of us have, have found kind of physically getting together has been you know, literally impossible for the majority of the the last few well months and and into years um the thing i've kind of found really fascinating with it is as kids we all learn to draw and we communicate through drawing and when we start school we're kind of encouraged ditch the drawing get into kind of writing you move into adult life and it's even more writing and powerpoint comes into your life and everything becomes slides and bullet points and things that you're not supposed to read but we still manage to make Anyway, the the two things I've found most interesting recently are the Lego series play because there is so much that you subconsciously are manifesting in a physical model. You know, everybody can kind of pick up a piece of Lego and sort of build something. And there's so much meaning that you additionally get in a model than you do in something that you draw and so much more that you get in a drawing than you do when you write. And I think the more that we can perhaps look at those sorts of techniques for communicating with each other and problem solving and getting work done, a lot of the richness we just bring as a human experience, I think we will get into what we do day to day. So writing into drawing into modeling, the more we can do those things, the better, I think. Absolutely. And now moving away very slightly from Lego, if I may, um, Can you tell me a little bit about a challenging period that you've faced in your working life and how that's kind of ended up influencing the way you you manage and lead others, please? Yeah, sure. So um, I worked for Marks and Spencer for uh, 13 years, um, moved from there into Coopers and Librand and got a job in performance improvement. So based on my background, you'll kind of get the sense that that was probably a, a brilliant role to put me into. My first job was in the rather lovely Avenue Louise in Brussels, worked there for six months, came to the end of that piece of work and got taken aside by the lead partner and given the coaching that I would never amount to anything in consulting because I had no gravitas. And he then kind of like left me with that piece of feedback and and walked off. And that piece of feedback stuck with me for many years. Um, IBM acquired PwC Consulting, which was kind of the, the splinter off of PricewaterhouseCoopers after the merger of Coopers and Library and Pricewaterhouse in 2002. And I started to think, right, well, where do I fit in, in such a large organization? 
Um, I joined a group called Eagle, um, which is IBM's LGBT plus network group as a way of kind of finding my own community within a big tech company community. For me, it was a complete eye opener. I sort of totally found a new family. It was a really brilliant experience. Two years in, the two people that were the co-chairs coincidentally both left at the same time and therefore left the network group with a bit of a void. No one was instantly rushing in to lead it, myself included. And the options were the group kind of collapses or the leaders are appointed and it's kept going. And for me, it was more important to keep it going than it was to see this kind of little little group of people just disband. As a result of that, I was lucky to go on a Stonewall leadership development course. And one of the facilitators on the course gave us the notion that there are glass or pink ceilings, but there are also sticky floors. So you might be holding a limiting belief about yourself or holding truth, something someone's told you, and it's holding you back. And for me, that whole, you have no gravitas, you won't get any further, sort of was one of those, you know, aha moments. In terms of consulting, I'd always sold on work and I'd always had good feedback, but I'd always held myself back with this gravitas thing. So to have that kind of bubble burst for me was like a a really big thing. But it wasn't until a couple of years ago, IBM's chief storyteller, and yes, that really is an official job title, that person left the company. They were running a long training course for our chief supply chain officer sales team. Um, Nine week course, two weeks in, and he left. And the organizers came to me and said, Scott, will you take this program on? Because we really need somebody. And I was, okay, so, you know, tell me a bit more. And they said, you're the only one with the gravitas to actually pull the training off. So suddenly this gravitas I'd been told I never had and something I'd never really felt I'd developed, seemingly I had in spades to do this course. So for me, that really crystallized, don't stick to limiting beliefs and kind of really question what you're being told And as a leader, it's something I'm really keen to do with the people that I lead and the people that I manage is if I hear them sort of declaring something which sounds very limiting, or I feel they haven't challenged me on something I've actually said to them, I try to make that a conversation that we have so that they really develop their way through that. Very interesting. So it sounds like that negative experience released you in some ways because you kind of had that epiphany moment but obviously I I kind of get the impression that you were quite fortunate to have had that epiphany moment and there are probably many others who've never had one yet but are just waiting for someone to give that opportunity to them is that something you try and yeah absolutely it's that sort of pay it forward I, I think if you've had a bit of insight that really has changed the direction or made you look at something in a different way I think the more that you can kind of pass that forward to other people. Certainly, personally, I had a manager once that made it really clear to me, what do you want to be known for? Because until you know what you want to be known for, other people may find it hard to work out what that is, or may be very clear on what they think it is, but it's not necessarily what you might want them to think it is. So um, be really clear, what do you want to be known for? Because it helps the decisions that you make, and it helps you to kind of almost coach other people in what you are bringing and what you hope to receive from that relationship. 
Absolutely. No, that's a very good mantra to live by. And perhaps has uh, put you under a bit of pressure now for my third question, which is a prediction on the future. So in some sense, Scott, what do you want to be known for? Um, and what do you think might be uh, change the market or indeed the broader business landscape in the coming future? So this one, I'm working for um, you know a company such as IBM with so many different technologies that are being developed. There are so many things to kind of choose from. Quantum is obviously sort of the, the biggest thing on the horizon at the moment, and that's really coming to light now, but I think it's still obviously something we're all going to be much more familiar with in the future. The thing that for me is going to make the most immediate difference is um, natural language processing. And um, for anyone that's watched the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy TV series or read the books and, and can picture a thing called the Babelfish. The Babelfish was a literally a small fish that you could put in your ear and it would bring in language and sounds from outside of the world and outside of your universe and translate it in a way that you could understand. And AI at the moment and NLP, natural language processing, and speech to text and translations that are being done automatically for me, feels like everybody is now capable of understanding everybody else, which is such a huge leveler. Um, but it brings with it the challenge that I've talked about a little bit before in that you kind of need to challenge what you're hearing and what was the intent when it was broadcast. Because I think we're going to have the tooling to make the text and the language understandable but we're still really going to need to work on being clear on what was the intent when it was sent. But for me, NLP and the fact that everyone can understand everybody else just feels like such an amazing thing that could change a lot for a lot of us. Absolutely. No, it's certainly uh, revolutionary in terms of for most of us, how we keep shopping lists and very simple things like that these days are Slightly different, uh, depending on whether you use Siri or not. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the questions that I would certainly have with that is, do you feel like we're getting that close to sort of a globally equal impression when it comes to natural language and processing? Because I certainly feel even if you have a thick Scottish accent these days, you're going to struggle to speak to Siri. <laughs> I, I think it's getting to the point where, yes, it will understand tone, it will understand dialect. The more that it hears, the more that it will understand. I actually spent some time with one of our development teams last week, training an AI in a marketing application, which sounds very strange, how would you do that? And literally you would voice commands that you want the system to do. Real time, you would see on the screen how the technology was interpreting the statement. And then working with the developers, it was saying, this is what the machine has understood from what you have said, Scott. Is that what you wanted it to do? And we were sort of moving code blocks around so that the machine actually was doing what I was intending. And you sort of think, well, that at scale, and you just think about all the different languages that that is happening in, and the sort of common understanding that that can bring is, is pretty mind-blowing. Yeah, no, it really, really is. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Scott. That was uh, truly fascinating uh, and certainly something I, I look forward to being able to see uh, in my daily life in the near future. So thank you again. You're more than welcome and thank you for having me. It's been brilliant. <laughs>